0: All right, Mark 1, 14 and 15. You've heard of this verse before. It is is probably the key verse of the entire book of Mark. And it goes like this. When John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee and he was preaching or proclaiming the good news of God. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God or the reign of God has come near. Repent and trust in this announcement, trust in this good news. Those two verses, Mark 1, 14 and 15, contain the seed of truth that will become an entirely new reality on earth. And if we were to take that announcement of the kingdom and to tease it out um, a, a little bit, maybe give it some, like a more modern, comprehensible language to it, it might sound something a little more like this. When corrupt world powers arrested John for declaring the inconvenient truth about God's way of life. That is, when Herod canceled John the Baptist, Jesus went public in Galilee, proclaiming a new reality was dawning. And he was saying, have you heard the news? The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God has come near. Rejoice, gather round, get on board. The way of the world is leading you toward death, so follow me instead. Stay close to me, it's about to go down. The revolution has begun, a new day has dawned, follow my lead, and then I imagine Jesus does a mic drop and walked out, that would be like a little more updated announcement. But just because Jesus has this mic droppable announcement doesn't mean that Jesus is just some other, you know, talking voice on social media or some sort of opinionated podcaster that, you know, is just blowing hot air into the sound waves or some, you know, flash-in-the-pan TED talker with some ideas and then everyone forgets about it. Jesus makes this announcement about the inbreaking reign of God. And then the very next things that he does are embody that reign of God in his words, in his deeds, in the very way that he lives his life. Last week we began to see what the reign of God looks like when we explored Mark chapter one, verses 16 through 20. And I pointed out that the very first thing Jesus does after this announcement of the inbreaking kingdom was not to go set up an army or to create a palace or to fortify a position, or even to gather a crowd. The first thing that Jesus does is to build a community of people who will follow him and share in his ministry of the kingdom of God. And I think that is significant. It is significant that the God of the universe humbles himself, becomes a human being, and the first thing that he does is gather a community to love, and to share life with, and to teach, and to train. That's a sliver of what the reign of God looks like. This evening, we're going to continue the story, and we're going to see how the reign of God manifests itself next. And we're going to look at Mark 1, 21 through 28. And let me just, let me just read, it, read it for you. You can follow along if you want uh, in your Bible. Um, but here's how the story goes. So, He's just gathered this community, or the beginnings of a community, and then it says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. Now, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, and he said, Shut up, shut your mouth, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out, and with a loud voice came out of the man. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? His commands, even the unclean spirits, obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So Jesus and his new community, so far it's just made up of four people. There's Simon, who's later gonna become Peter, so just mentally if you wanna make that leap, that's Simon and his brother Andrew And then James and his brother John. So two sets of brothers. They're with Jesus. And later on, we're gonna learn that Capernaum is also the hometown of Simon and Andrew, Peter. Um, So anyway, so they're in kind of the hometown there. And uh, the text tells us that it's the Sabbath day. So it's between a Friday night and a Saturday night. And they go to the synagogue. And it says that Jesus was teaching I, I wish I knew what he was teaching. Like Mark doesn't tell us, but wouldn't that be cool to like hear a sermon from Jesus or hear him expound one of the texts? I would just love that, uh, but we don't get that. But whatever he was teaching, it was so powerful that the community gathered there at the synagogue were amazed. And in Mark's words, they said he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes, teaching as one with authority and not as their scribes. Now what's that all about? Well, the scribes were experts in interpreting the scriptures and interpreting tradition. When they taught at a synagogue setting or in a school setting to their disciples, they would often quote authorities on scripture or traditional interpretations of scripture that had been handed down and handed down and handed down. They would occasionally make their own observations about Scripture, but then they would back it up with other people who thought pretty much the same thing. They would largely reinforce what was already believed by most of the people there, and what was already accepted as the right way, quote unquote, to interpret Scripture. But when Jesus taught, it was different. Take the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as an example. In that teaching, Jesus over and over again says things like, you have heard that it was said, but I say, right? So you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say, you shall love your enemies as yourself and pray for those who persecute you. In so doing those things, you will become sons and daughters of your Father who's in heaven. So you see, Jesus Jesus is doing something different from the scribes and Pharisees. And in Matthew's gospel, they also said, what is this new teaching, one with authority? So Jesus taught as one who not only interpreted the scriptures or built on the scholarship of other people, he taught as one who had the authority to go against the popular teaching of, of human Bible scholars where they were misinterpreting scripture, that's key. Jesus isn't doing something like new, he isn't like debunking scripture, he isn't saying that old stuff is old, let me give you something new, but he is taking to task where the Bible scholars were getting it wrong and he was blowing people's minds. There's more than just his words. Lots of teachers over history came up with novel ideas about how to interpret scripture, but then they were quickly cast out as heretics, right? And false teachers, and uh, they, they didn't teach with authority. But Jesus taught, and people observed that he had this authority. That word authority in Greek is exousia, exousia. Usia, go like this, usia, it is, the usia is your essence, the soma is your body in Greek, but usia, you can hear the ooze word there, right? like, usia, it's your soul, it's the very essence of, of who you are, it's your being, so that's the usia, and then X is a preposition, and, and, and you know what a preposition is, it's like, uh, words like on the table, it's a preposition, under the table the side of the table, over the table, right? Those are prepositions, and, and the preposition X means from out of, right? So it's where we get our English words like exuberant, right? Out of, um, explosive. You start small like a little firecracker, and then it explodes outward, right? Exuberant, explosive, expansive, Exousia then means literally from out of the essence of one's person. That's authority. And Jesus, what they're saying about Jesus is his teaching isn't finding its authority in what other people have said before or in the tradition, but it's exousia, it's out of him. Whatever inner quality they were noticing in Jesus Mark already tells us what it is, the first line of his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's the exousia. There are three instances of Jesus' authority or exousia in this passage we're studying tonight. Two of them come, uh, one at the beginning, and one at the end. After his teaching, they say, What is this? He teaches with authority and not as our scribes. Then in the middle, he has this exorcism thing with a demon guy. And then at the end, they're like blown away that he could do that. And so they mention the exousia word two different times. In the middle of that sandwich, though, is an episode. It's not a teaching, but it's an action. Remember, this whole story is an illustration of what happens when the reign of God comes near. Well, one of the things that happens when the reign of God comes near is that it comes into conflict with the reign of darkness and the reign of oppression. Jesus encounters man in this story with a spiritual oppression. He's described as having an unclean spirit, which is another way of saying a demon. And Jesus casts out this demon Notice that the demon, singular, in verse 34 says, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Who is this us? In other parts of the Bible, sometimes Jesus encounters a guy with with legion, which is like multiple spirits inside of him. That's not the case in this passage. Who is this us that the singular demon is talking about? he's speaking on behalf of all of his kind of all of the demons and that spiritual dark world and he recognizes that with jesus with his presence so the reign of god is breaking in have you come here to destroy us actually yeah jesus has He's come to break the hold of evil, to set captives free, to release prisoners to sin and death and oppression. That's part of the inbreaking reign of God. There's, I mean, I know that if you're half, have half a gene of curiosity, it's like, well, tell me more about this. I mean, it's so fascinating and interesting. Um, but we don't know a whole lot about demons, right? Like you could take the whole Bible and it's just like little bits and pieces that are just really strange. And so what we've done as human beings over over just centuries and centuries, um, even before the Bible, like there, there's stories of all kinds of spiritual wacko-ness and, and people write stories about it. So what we've done in like the last hundred years, for example, in our fiction is that we've um, we've done lots of things with them, but one of the things we've done is we've tried to make them more interesting. Like, wouldn't it be interesting to write stories about demons and the, like how they're really powerful and maybe they're like, like in competition with God somehow. And so in those kinds of fiction stories, we, we typically make the Satan and demons to be more powerful than they actually are. And that's just a categorical error. We don't, error, I mean, it's categorical error. We don't know a lot about demons and the Satan, but we do know, like, everything that the scriptures tell us is that Jesus is superior in every way, and it's not even, like, it's not even close. So there's not really much of a struggle there. Um, other fictional narratives, narratives have gone the other way and tried to sort of like humanize demons and, and like soften them as poor, misunderstood spirits that just need a second chance and, and maybe they could just repent of whatever demonish stuff that they do. And, you know, we even have like comics like Hellboy, who's like this, you know, misunderstood poor demon. And you know, it's like, no, that's, that's also a categorical error in thinking. And I think that the danger has always been that we either pay way too much attention. Uh, to demons and the Satan, or we don't pay enough attention, right? And we're just like, ah, oh, that's, that's weird, so I'm not going to think about it. My guess is that Scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot about these dark spiritual forces because the point isn't for us to do a whole lot with these dark spiritual forces. The point is always to keep our eyes on Jesus, who came to handle it for us. And that's, that's the important part about the gospel In this story, Jesus is shown in confrontation with a demon. And in ancient magical books as well as contemporary manuals from like shamans and exorcists, it's believed that knowing the name, knowing information, personal information about a spirit could give one power over that spirit. So in verse 24 of Mark 1, the demon tries to uh, like speak before Jesus speaks, right? And so he, he, um, he says things like, He declares Jesus' name, and he declares the town of Jesus' origin, Jesus of Nazareth, and he he claims, he says out loud, Jesus' status before God, the Holy One of God. But to the demon's dismay, Jesus is unaffected by this power grab. He's not held by any kind of power from the demon. Instead, Jesus throws down a decisive blow Phimothatai, he says. That's a fun word to say. Phimothatai. It means be muzzled. In most of our English translations, it will say something like, be quiet or be still. I, th- I don't know why they made that decision. I wonder if it's because like, I don't know, some nice Christian mom translator was like, I'm trying to teach my children to use nice language. So we're going to use be quiet instead of shut up. This word, be muzzled, was a slang term in the first century that meant shut your trap. Put a cork in it, Zane. Shut up, which is how I translated it in the reading. Shut up, he says. And then he says, "Er "erkomai." Okay, sorry about all the Greek words, but I was just thinking like, what if Harry Potter, instead of it was like, instead of he said, expelleramus, it was like, Make your wand fly out of your hand. I mean, it's like Latin is so much cooler, so Greek is cooler. And Jesus says, "Er "Erkamai," which means come out of him. Shut your mouth and come out of him. Jesus is throwing down on on this demon. He's not messing around because it is oppressing and tormenting a human being made in God's image. After throwing a sort of crying fit, the demon obeys and the man is set free. Again, we're not told a whole lot about demons or how they work or even like what they really want. As interesting as all of that is, it's not at all the point of the story. The point is that Jesus has authority over dark spiritual forces. Spiritual forces that tormented people and terrified people so much so that when Paul later is writing about the gospel of Jesus to churches in Asia Minor, take Ephesus, for example, in the first chapter of Ephesians, he talks as being wrapped up in the good news of Jesus, that the power that raised Jesus from the dead also defeats the, the, the evil one and, 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 and the demons. Why is that important? Because people who lived in that time period were very aware that there was spiritual darkness, and they were terrified from it and they used to do all kinds of pagan rituals to try and, um, you know, even, even like the, the roots of Halloween where we have the, the jack-o'-lanterns to scare away evil spirits on All Hallows' Eve, right? Like, people, like, that's fun for us to carve those pumpkins, but some people from some time periods were terrified that they might be affected by a dark spirit, and the part of the gospel is that Jesus is more powerful and cast them out. So even Paul is onto that. And the whole emphasis here is on Jesus. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give you a little bit, <laughs> this is off topic, sorry if we go a little long today, but like, so preaching these kinds of texts, right? A lot of times in a text like this, the point isn't to give you three take-home things to do. That's a very American way of, of reading the Bible, and a very, very American way of preaching the Bible and receiving preaching from the Bible is like, that was a good sermon if I got three things to go do. But I'm telling you that Mark knew what he was doing when he wrote this gospel, and he's not giving us three things to go do. What he's doing is telling us the truth about Jesus. He's saying, I want you to focus on Jesus. Look, he's more powerful than these things you're afraid of. When the reign of God comes in, it displaces evil. That's good news, and so, rather than applications, a lot of times what the scriptures give us are implications. So you're supposed to go home now and say, like, keep my eyes on Jesus. He's more powerful than the things I'm afraid of. My friend who's um, stuck in addiction or a, 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 a dark place, you know what, I'm going to pray now because Jesus can break through that. I'm reminded of that. Or this thing I'm stuck with, I'm going to pray into that. Jesus, so th- that's, that's how you apply the implication, but I know where I am, I'm in America, and I'm an American too, and so what I'm gonna do is give us three ways we might live out these implications. Is that okay with you? So I think that the point is, Jesus is powerful, he's good, we're supposed to keep our eyes on him. Here are three ways we can keep our eyes on Jesus, okay? Oh, scratch him where everybody's itching, okay. Um, Jesus is the savior, number one, who brings the good fight. Jesus is the Savior who brings the good fight. He fights for us, not against us. As we observe the life of Jesus in the Scriptures and then observe the teachings of the apostles who lived and wrote in the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that human beings are not the true enemies. They're not our true enemies. Now that is not to say that we don't ever need to be cautious, or safe, or even weary around some people. People under the influence of their trauma, and grief, and coping mechanisms, brain chemistry, substances, pressures, personalities, demons, national pride, all of those things can be can make a person quite dangerous. Then you take a community of people who are under the influence of something and they can be quite dangerous. A- ask Ukraine about uh, is, is their neighbor Russia being dangerous right now, right? But ultimately, human beings are not the enemy, right? We can do some pretty rotten things under the influence of things, but, but we're not the true enemy of God. Jesus knows that ultimately human beings do evil because we are hurting and because we're functioning out of other influences besides him and his love. Uh, Some of you are probably familiar with Ephesians chapter 6. In that classic text, which is often memorized by children and teenagers and sometimes adults, I think I've memorized it and forgotten it like at least three times, (laughs) which is why I'm going to read it. Um, But it says something like this, right? Like, stand strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here's the key phrase now. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and all of these are lumped up into one thing, against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness. That's the enemy. All of these ethereal dark spiritual things that come out. I mean, you might call it the zeitgeist of the spirit of the age or the ideology of the age. Whatever it is, Like, it's not a human being that is our ultimate enemy. And then it goes on to list all this armor that we're supposed to put on, like the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and to shod our feet with the preparation of gospel and every little boy's favorite, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And unfortunately, despite the clear context from this passage that we're supposed to stand firm in the strength of God, this passage has often been used to sort of like rally humans to like go to war against Satan and the demons. Let me just say that unless you have the gift of deliverance, (laughs) unless you have the gift of deliverance, that's just a bad idea to like imagine yourself with Bible sword and like, let's go demon slaying tonight. And I have met a few people with the gift of deliverance and I guarantee you they all say the same thing. I would not wish this on anyone. (laughs) No, this Ephesians text and these pieces of armor, these are things that God puts on They're direct references to the prophets. And if you want to do some homework on your own, check out Isaiah 59, where God puts on the pieces of armor and God fights battles on our behalf. And if you're just like, I want to hear more, I listen to my sermon on Ephesians 6. It's on our website. On your own, not now, like later. What Paul is trying to communicate and what Jesus illustrates in Mark chapter one is that God is the one who brings the fight to spiritual forces of darkness. And when we put on the armor, it means that we're putting on our trust in the one Jesus who has the authority to deliver us. That's insanely good news. Because that means it's not through your ability to do battle with evil forces, but through faith in Jesus and his authority that we're delivered. So paying attention to Jesus means trusting in him to deliver us and delivering the people that we love and to deliver our world. And if that puts me in one position, it's not this one, but it's this one, right? It's, I'm praying for my deliverance. I'm praying for the deliverance of, of people in my life who are stuck. I'm praying for the deliverance of the world because it's beyond me, but it's not beyond him. And if you're seeking deliverance from being trapped in a way of living or a way of thinking or a way of being that is damaging to you and damaging to others, then I encourage you to do two things. Here's actually an application. It's a two-parter. The first thing is to cry out to God, like literally pray to Jesus for help. And the second thing, the second thing is to reach out to someone you can trust to help you make some, next, make some next steps. That might be me. That might be another leader in the church or a f- spiritual friend that you trust. But I encourage you to do both, not one of those two things, but both of those things if you're feeling stuck. Okay, so that's one of the ways that we can keep our eye on Jesus. That's one implication of this story in Mark chapter one. But the second one is that paying attention to Jesus involves trusting that he, it's he who leads us to forming life-giving attachments, affections, and passions, rather than those that attach us to demonic activity. Let me just break that down a little bit. We don't talk a lot about spiritual forces in the Western world. Even in church, we just don't do it very often. But we're the minority. Because most of the world, for most of time, uh, has been um, well aware that there's other things going on besides our empirically focused Western world will give credit for. And I think... um, uh, I mean, we're the minority for lacking such imagination. But however we want to talk about it or to deny it, I don't have time it's not really my purview right now to try and convince you of a spiritual world that of darkness and these kinds of things. That's not really the point right now. However you want to think about it or deny it, the scriptures imply that while spiritual forces do not have direct authority over followers of Jesus, we can give them authority. Over us. And we do that by placing our trust or our faith in that which is not Christ-like. So whenever we give our hearts to greed and gluttony, the lust for comfort, the lust for sex, the lust for power, the lust for ambition, and the list is like almost endless because you can, you can desire lots of things besides Christlikeness then we have the potential of giving ourselves over to being trapped. Addictions are a great example, but I'm not just talking about chemical addictions. Um, Addictions to anger or power, being liked, body image. I mean, there's just, again, such a list that we can get hung up with, right? And the good news is that uh, the reign of God in Jesus is, is that he can rescue us through his spirit he can change our hearts he can reform our desires he can transform us so that we begin to desire that which is lovely and beautiful and true and that which is charitable and faithful and joyful and humble those are the things I want to desire more than my own comfort more than my own pleasure more than my own security but I don't often And Jesus sets us free, and this is an important piece to all of this. He sets us free not by magic or by osmosis, but through prayer and faith and through practicing Christian community and doing what you're doing, participating in worship and receiving a steady diet of the word of God. Sometimes we receive help from deliverance through prayer and therapy, and spiritual direction, and trauma care, and good friendships. Remember, the first thing Jesus does when he announces the reign of God, his first action is to form a community. We are fools if we think we can find healing and wholeness outside of community. We need Jesus, and we need the community of Jesus, oh, that just rubs our independence the wrong way, doesn't it? But if you're feeling resistance there, pay attention. Pay attention. The third thing, and this is the last one, so I'm bringing it home. Paying attention to Jesus means paying attention to his mission. Jesus you know, in this, his mission of bringing justice, of bringing freedom from oppression, right? Um, Jesus involves us as his followers um, in his exercising work of bringing justice and light and goodness and beauty and truth and holiness into the world. And you know, there are lots of passages of Scripture and many sermons and books many of my sermons even, because the the text is is, is in the right place, where we're encouraged to shine the light of Christ, the spotlight of the truth and love of Christ. We're we're, we're encouraged in Scripture uh, to shine it at government, right? And to expose corruption. We're we're encouraged to, to expose it on social structures and injustice in the world. We do well as the followers of Jesus to speak out against corrupt powers that prop up racism and prop up abuses and prop up inhumane treatment of refugees and the unborn and ethnic and sexual and social minorities. Like, we do well when we speak truth to power as the church. But I want to take us in a different direction because it's based on this text that we're in tonight. And I want to point out where the exorcism takes place. The demon is in a man who, by all accounts, is part of the synagogue. The evil is within a person who is part of the people of God. And the question is does that surprise us? Far too many churches and Christian nonprofits are set up with naivete, assuming that. The best in people, the best intentions, our desire to be good is good enough. But what is a church? It's foundationally from its pastors and leaders to children and new attenders. It's foundationally made up of people who are so broken that we've come to see we need forgiveness from Jesus and healing. Like, that's the kind of people in a church. I would argue you can't really follow Jesus unless you realize that you need him, that you need forgiveness, right? Like, repentance is the first step toward following Jesus. And so we're literally a community of broken and healing people. To assume that churches and Christians are somehow more immune to corruption, is actually to set the stage for corruption. Evil thrives where there's lack of transparency, where there's secrecy, where there's isolation from others, and lack of accountability. So part of keeping our eyes on Jesus means taking our need for him seriously. And that means taking seriously each of our tendencies to make bad decisions and selfish decisions and foolish decisions and sometimes evil decisions. As a leadership team at Letter Street's Covenant Church, we strive to walk in transparency. We strive to, from our bookkeeping to uh, um, our, um, our communications about what we're thinking and what we're doing and where we're going. We, we try and be as transparent as possible. We annually have a qualified set of eyes from outside the leadership team look at our financial records and give us advice and just, just to check it over, make sure everything is consistent and done with integrity. Our kids in youth ministry conduct background checks on our staff and volunteers. They, they do the darkness to light training. In fact, there's one coming in February, I believe, for how to spot abuses of power and how to prevent abuses of power. And you know, there's no perfect structures that will prevent human failure, but dig beneath the abuses uh, of most abuses in church power, and you're often gonna find the common denominator. And it's usually lack of accountability, lack of transparency, nepotism, cover-ups, and hiddenness. Sisters and brothers, let's keep our eyes on Jesus by walking in the light together, by staying in community so that we are known and getting to know each other better. We are strongest when we are honest about our struggles, when we're honest about our tendencies toward failure, because only then can we really support each other. And I just want to be transparent that, that I have a multi-layered system of personal accountability for me. And that includes, uh, some of the things that that includes is a weekly uh, a meeting with a trusted colleague where we can both be brutally honest about what we're going through at any given time. And I meet monthly with the spiritual director and quarterly with our pastoral care team who's checking in about me and my family and how we're doing. And I try to be appropriately honest and transparent with our leadership team and our staff and from the pulpit and in conversation. And I need all of those checks and balances. And I would encourage you to take stock of whether or not you truly have someone else who also follows Jesus, who you can trust to be open and honest about your struggles. Someone who you can share your honest uh, prayer concerns and take counsel from, and have some level of accountability. There are no perfect Christians. But if we're Christians, it's because we have a perfect Savior who fights on our behalf and who wants us to walk in truth and forgiveness and new life. Lord, thank you for this good news that your servant Mark has passed down to us. Thank you that you are one who has the exousia, the the power from within to overcome evil and darkness, even our own evil and darkness, even in the hidden places of our hearts and minds that we wish no one else knew about. You know about these things, and you love us and you want to set us free. Lord, may there be more freedom in each of us today than there was when we walked into this building. Lord, may there be more freedom and light in the world today. We pray that you would push it back. We pray that you would set captives free. We thank you, Lord. Amen.